Well, brothers, please open up in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 4. And as you were doing so, I would invite you once again this morning to stand for the reading of God's holy word. We are making our way verse by verse, as it were, through Paul's letter to the Galatians this summer. And this morning, we find ourselves right at the beginning of chapter 4. And so I'm going to read in your hearing Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Let us give our attention now to the word of the Lord. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please take your seats, brothers and sisters. Adoption is a word, uh, an idea, a concept, really, that, that at least in our context, when it hits our ears, it does so bursting at the seams. And what bursts forth when we're talking about adoption is love. Consider this, the love of the birth mother to carry her child to full term and not murder it in the womb. Or the love of the adoptive parents to make this little one their own. Literally, to give him or her their last name, to take him or her into their home, and to create a family for them and around them and through them. And then, as you parents know, to lay down your lives for your children. The point is, this whole thing, it is a gloriously pregnant picture of love and of commitment and of grace. And church, that is the picture that is going to be displayed before you and me this morning. It's like a, it's like a stunning portrait. And with every stroke of the brush, we are going to see the wonder of the gospel, the height of God's love, and really the glory of what it means for you and I to be brought into God's family and to be given a seat at his table. Now, I should hasten to add that these wonderful gospel truths have already been more than hinted at, haven't they? In, in the previous weeks, if you recall, back in Galatians 3, Paul labored to show the church. He labored to show us who we are. So, for example, back in Galatians 3, 7, Paul explains, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So if you are in Christ, meaning you have received Christ as he is offered to you in the gospel, if that is true of you, then you are a 
child of Abraham. And the point that Paul has been making is, you are a child of Abraham regardless of the blood that happens to be flowing through your veins. If that wasn't enough, because you are a child of Abraham, you are also part of God's people. The end of Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 29, make this plain. The church, we are told, is not one that is ethnically defined, nor is it confined to a particular people or culture. In other words, skin color has no bearing. Language is not definitional. Your zip code or accent or tax bracket has nothing to do with it. Rather, the church is made up of those who have repented of their sins and who are relying upon Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's how you become part of the people of God. But Paul has no breaks. It's all gas. In fact, he redlines the whole thing in Galatians 3.26. I say that because we are more than sons of Abraham, and we are more than just part of the church. We are also, Galatians 3.26, sons of God. Now just think for a moment how staggering an assertion that really is. You and I, we are, by virtue of Christ, the one and only unique son of God. We all then become sons. Of God. Now, I have to say in passing, especially considering where we live here in the Tri-Cities, when when we're talking here about you and I becoming sons of God, this is not some sort of quasi-Mormon doctrine where we can all, if we really work hard and do our best here, that we can all sort of exalt into godhood and have our own planets. That's what Mormonism teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. When we're talking about becoming sons of God here, in the context of Galatians, the idea of being a son of God has everything to do with the fact that you and I are made part of God's family. So catch this. In the gospel, when it comes to our relationship with God, we are not enemies. We are not strangers. We are not even distant cousins. We are sons. And all of this, whether we are talking about being Abraham's seed or being part of the church or being God's sons, the point not to be missed is that this is all a reality for us, but not because of us. That is to say, everything, every syllable of this good news, it is owing to Christ. Everything that we have, it is all ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These wonderful gospel promises, they rest on the rock-solid foundation, not of you and me, but of Christ. Everything hinges not upon our feelings, but upon faith the end of the day, it's not about what we do. It's all about what Christ has already done for us. And of course, this is contrary to the Judaizers, those false teachers who were harassing the Galatian churches. They preached all sorts of of very sinister sermons 
Sermons like, you need Moses and his law. They would say things like, justification is not found in Christ and the new covenant, but in the Mosaic covenant. They would routinely harp upon the congregations. You need more obedience. You need to be Jewish. You need to do all of this stuff if you really want to experience the blessings of God. But Paul is quick to counter, and he has from the very beginning of Galatians, and he will all the way till the end. His counter is no. What you need is Christ. And Christ is all you need. And as you and I come now to the beginning of Galatians chapter 4, Paul is going to continue to tug at that same thread. And he will do so at least initially by way of an analogy. He says, beginning in verse 1, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. I will grant to you that to you and I, that all sounds uh, quite foreign to our ears. We don't, we don't really understand uh, the, the, the historical context into which Paul is speaking here. And, and that is because you and I and Bible times, well, we live on different places and different times. What is strange to our ears was altogether normal to the ears of those in Galatia. And that's because Paul is drawing upon a well-known and well-practiced Greek law of the time. And so picture in your mind, if you can, a wealthy father. I'm talking about like a total bigwig with lots of money and lots of land and lots of servants. And so with all that he has, he also has a son, an heir. And it was very customary during this time for that wealthy father to entrust his son, at at least while he was a wee little lad, into the care of what were called at the time guardians or managers. And you can see that language in verse 2. But he, that's speaking of the heir, is under guardians and managers. Now, in the ancient world, the guardian was someone who would handle the affairs of the estate until the rightful heir reached maturity or adulthood. Managers were similar. They would basically be the hands-on type of person who would handle the sort of day-to-day operations. To put it in sort of our context, and in, in, in sort of the business world lingo, we might be thinking about a CEO and a COO. Here's the point, though. The heir, as long as he is a minor, he is really no different from a slave. Granted, he knew that there was a time coming in which he would inherit his father's estate. That is all true. But that time was still yet future. He was placed, verse 2, under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. But until that date set, he was, middle of verse 1, really no different from a slave. That is to say, he had no legal or property rights. His guardians and managers kept him under discipline. He was told when to wake up, when to go to school, what to wear, how to behave, when to go to bed. 
Which means, and stay with me here because this is the point of Paul's analogy, the son, the heir, he really is, practically speaking, no different than a slave. Now with that background, that analogy, Paul then goes for the punchline. In the same way, verse 3, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. You see what Paul is saying? We were the elect of God, the people of God. We too, even though we were sons and heirs, we were likewise enslaved. And we were enslaved, specifically, Paul says, to the elementary principles of the world. Now let me say quickly, there is fierce debate over exactly what Paul intends there by that phrase, elementary principles. And while the opinions are as varied as they are numerous, from where I sit, it seems, and this is sort of just based on the overall context of Paul's letter to the Galatians, it seems to me that the elementary principles are something of a veiled reference to the Mosaic Covenant. I say that because that is, after all, what the Judaizers were pushing on these churches. They were saying that if you really wanted to be right in God's sight, if you wanted justification, well, then you had to adhere to this Mosaic covenant. Now, in thinking about this, the the idea of the Mosaic covenant and its so-called elementary principles— It is worth pointing out that throughout Paul's letter to the Galatians, what he routinely does is sort of juxtapose competing realities. And he he sort of puts these things side by side to demonstrate the glory and the supremacy of Christ and his gospel over and against these so-called rivals. For example, we've seen a whole host of these over the last couple of months. You will recall, uh, you've got law and grace. Law and grace. And this is a massive contrast that Paul returns to often in this letter. The question is this, is God's grace free or is it contingent upon your obedience to the law? In a related vein, we have seen Paul set works and faith next to each other. So the question that we have frequently seen goes something like this. Will you be right in God's sight based upon your works or simply by faith? Still another theme pitted against each other is performance versus promise. Does Christ and His gospel flow to you owing to your performance, or is it simply because of God's covenant promises? Then there is the old covenant and how it is set next to the new covenant. Paul has shown us that one covenant offers death, the other life. One offers chains, while the other gives freedom. Similarly, you see Moses and Abraham. Will the promises of the covenant come to you by your doing, i.e. Moses, 
or by your believing Abraham. And then when we get into chapter 5, you will see another contrast, and that is the contrast between the flesh and the spirit. Now, I raise all of this here, beloved, because in a lot of ways, what Galatians is, is a tale of two ideas, two ways that you and I can be right with God. So on the one hand, you've got law and works and performance and the old covenant and Moses and your doing. But then, on the other, you've got grace and faith and promise and the new covenant and Abraham and how all the work has been done for you. And it's important. It's important to see the connection. Because over here, the law and works and performance and old covenant and Moses and your doing, all of these things are really saying the same thing. You know what it is? It's all about you. While in contrast, you've got, again, grace and faith and promise and the new covenant and Abraham and all it being done for you. Well, really, that's all about Christ. It seems then, and we needn't be overly dogmatic here, but it seems that these elementary principles enslaving the churches in Galatia, again, it entailed the idea of the Mosaic covenant and all it represented. It was about you and your way to please God and how you would seek justification before Him. And these fledging churches, they had bitten hook, line, and sinker on what the Judaizers had dangled out in front of them. They had been led to believe that Christ really wasn't enough. That Christ wasn't altogether sufficient to save sinners like you and me. Unfortunately, the churches had returned, or at least were on the verge of returning, and and perhaps a better word would be retarded, because they went back to the Mosaic Covenant and all its types and all its shadows, when in reality, Christ and the New Covenant, right, the antitype and the substance had come. Well, why would you go back to this? So to summarize, bear with me. Paul is saying something like this. To do that, to go back to the law, thinking that it is a means of justification. By doing so, you are ditching the utter sufficiency of Christ. To do that is to trade freedom for chains. And don't get me wrong, the Mosaic Covenant had its place. It served its purpose. We might think of it as something like grammar school. It offered a remedial education like your ABCs. It was, and here you see the analogy of verses 1 and 2 connect to Paul's bigger point, Moses is like the guardians and managers put in place for minors. But in adulthood, in maturity, you need no longer be under their thumb. Christ has come. The date set by the Father, end of verse 2, it has arrived. In fact, you and I, we are looking at it in the rearview mirror. In Christ and the new covenant, we have been set free. Set free from those guardians and managers. Set free from the weight and burden of Moses. 
set free from those chains that enslaved us, set free from the very condemnation of the law. And again, not because the law just magically ceased to condemn us, but because Christ himself was cursed on our behalf and bore in his own body the curse on the cross. Galatians 3.13. So let's be very clear. That is how the chains come off. We were, verse 3, enslaved. We were, but not anymore. The key that unshackles us is the gospel. More specifically, Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And it is because of Christ that you and I have moved from slavery to sonship. It is because of Christ that we have not just been freed, but that we have been made part of God's very family. Now, to unpack this, and in on unpacking it, I, I pray that we would all see and savor Christ more fully. To unpack this, I want us to just sort of follow along in Galatians 4 and revel in these sort of seven essential truths of the gospel. Here, here are seven essential truths whereby Christ unshackles us and brings us into the family. First, take note of the timing of Christ's coming. We are told in verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come. The fullness of time, which is no doubt echoing the metaphorical language up at the end of verse 2. Remember, until the date set by the Father. You see, when Christ was born into our world, he came at the exact right moment in human history. He came not a day early, nor a day late. It was ordained from before the foundation of the world that Christ would come and that he would come when he did. To which you might scratch your head and think to yourself, well, why is the timing of Christ's coming significant anyway? Well, for this very reason, all the promises of God were pregnant, ready to be birthed. Think about it this way. If humanity was to be redeemed, well, the covenant of works broke by Adam had to be kept. The Scriptures had promised a seed of the woman would come and crush the skull of the serpent, though he himself would bruise his heel in the process. Or we might think of how all the families of the earth were waiting, as it were, with bated breath for this offspring of Abraham who would bring to the nations unparalleled blessings. We remember that the law had come through Moses, but it had threatened death to all who rebelled. Well, so the question is, who would be able to keep this law end the exile, and bring life. Speaking of life, we also know that the temple precincts themselves were full of inadequate priests. 
And the priests were inadequate because their sacrifices were never enough. Think about it this way. Each and every additional sacrifice was only a bloody reminder that their sins were not fully and finally forgiven. Because if they were, we wouldn't need to offer a sacrifice tomorrow. So when would the priest come who would offer a single sacrifice and by that single sacrifice truly reconcile God and man? If that wasn't enough, God's people needed a king. One like David, only better. One who would rule and reign forever. One whose kingdom would be marked by righteousness and justice and ever-growing and ever-expanding. You see, beloved, it is these promises and about a thousand more that were ready to come to fruition. They were just waiting for the right exact moment. And then some 2,000 years ago, when the fullness of time had come, Christ was born. Notice, second, the origin of Christ's coming. We read in verse 4 again, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Beloved, that one little phrase, God sent forth His Son, it reveals both the grace of the Father and the glory of the Son. The grace of the Father is seen in that it was the Father who actually sent His Son. Think about this. The Father from His own bosom is giving of Himself. And Christ, the Son of God, you see something of His glory in that He exists prior to coming into our dark and fallen world right? The the Father can't send Him if He doesn't exist until He comes, right? When we speak of the birth of the Son of God in space and time and history some 2,000 years ago, what we are speaking about is His incarnate state, His taking on human flesh for us. But the Son of God is the eternal Son of God. He has always been. There has never been a time when He was not. For all of eternity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has enjoyed loving fellowship and communion within Himself. But He did come. Christ did come, which leads us to the third way that this sort of gospel truth progresses, and that is the way of His coming. We are told that the Son of God was, verse 4, born of woman. Born of woman. Now, unfortunately, this is a truth we often tend to reflect upon only during Advent. But the incarnation of the Son of God stands at the very center of the gospel, the Christian faith, and our redemption. We would do well to marvel at the wonder and the beauty and the humility and the very glory of the eternal Son of God 
actually taking to himself, joining himself forever to our humanity. He really became one of us. Now we need to be careful. He, it's not as if the Son of God ceased to be divine. That, that would be impossible. How could God cease to be God? He didn't lose his divinity, but he did add to himself human nature. Or maybe to go at it a little bit differently, God didn't send an angel. Christ didn't fake it. The Lord Jesus was not some avatar. Christ really and truly humbled himself and became a man on our behalf to the point that he entered into the womb of the Virgin Mary as a zygote. So when the ancient creed confesses, rightfully so, we should say amen. Christ is truly God and truly man. Which leads us to the fourth reality of the gospel, and that is the circumstances of Christ's coming. The end of verse 4 reveals that Christ was born under the law. He was born under the law. This is vital, critical. Yes, it is true. Christ had to become one of us. He had to be truly human. But not only that, he had to be born under the law if he was truly to redeem you and I. Why, you ask? Well, because it was not rocks or trees or dolphins or seagulls that were made in God's image. And neither was it rocks or trees or dolphins or seagulls who rebelled against God. It was us. It was humanity. And so the curse rests upon all of creation, that's true, but it rests in a very profound way upon our heads. What this means, beloved, is that if the curse is to be lifted, humanity must somehow undo what has already been done. The curse must be reversed. Which means another Adam must come and obey. A second Adam must act for and on behalf of his people. Which, of course, is exactly what Christ did. As our Redeemer, as this unique one and only God-man, He came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. More specifically, He came to fulfill the requirements of the law on behalf of those who couldn't do it. Which also means that Christ's perfect obedience results in our adoption. In other words, we become sons of God as the Son of God works on our behalf and does everything that you and I and Adam failed to do. Again, this is why Christ had to be truly human and truly divine. Human because it was humans who, need rede who needed redemption. And divine because only God could be perfect and rescue us from ourselves. This all brings us to the fifth glorious reality of the gospel, and that is the purpose of Christ's coming. Verse 5 should cause our hearts to sing. Christ came to do what? 
to redeem those who were under the law. Church, know this. We were born under the law. We were born under the law, and as sinners, sin was our taskmaster. And it constantly barked at us, more bricks, more bricks, but never gave us straw. And because you and I couldn't keep the law, all the law really does to fallen sinners is show us our sin. It's like a magnifying glass. It, 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 it sort of zooms in on us and shows us who we are. It, it reveals our heinousness. You, you look at a fly on the, on the counter, and that's kind of a weird looking, I don't want the thing right. You put the thing under a magnifying glass, it's like out of a horror movie. Those things are terrifying. That's what the law does to us. It exposes us for who we really are. Which means that the law, like a staunch prosecuting attorney, only accuses us and seeks our condemnation. The law screams out for justice, which for lawbreakers like us would be judgment. That's the bad news. Here's the good news, though. Christ has come. He who is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Christ has come to redeem us. As Paul said back in Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That is what Christ does on the cross. Don't fall into this trap of thinking that what Christ chiefly does is give us sort of an example or a model for for you and I on, on how we're supposed to sort of yield to God when times get tough. That's nonsense. There is nothing inspiring or virtuous about the cross or any of that kind of stuff. Everybody in the first century knew what the cross was, and that is awful. The cross was horrendous. So brutal was the cross that in the ancient world, it was never even discussed in polite conversation. You sit at the table, we could talk about religion, we could talk about politics, that's fine. But you better not bring up the cross. You better not bring up what's happening outside uh, outside of Jerusalem on that hill over there. It was utterly despicable. And yet while the cross was an instrument of death, it was also the instrument of redemption. Because in and through Christ's death on our behalf, He redeems us. He sets us free, again, from the tyranny of sin and death and hell. And as good of news as that is. This is often where we stop and don't go far enough. We think the story of redemption ends in the first part of verse 5, but it doesn't. I would beg you to not pump the brakes at the comma. Church, what was the intention of all of this? Why did God send forth His Son? Why was Christ born of a woman under the law? It's more than to simply redeem us. And this is now the sixth glorious reality. And it speaks to Christ's intention. Christ has done all of this. He's done all of this. 
middle of verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I wonder if you have been given eyes to see. Eyes to see that literally the whole story of redemption, the unfolding drama, the Bible from beginning to end is about God making a family. That's really what the Bible is about. It's about God's overarching covenantal desire to be our God and we to be His people. But not just His people, to be His family. That is why God did what He did. That is why God sent forth His only beloved Son. That is why Christ did what he did. By by taking to himself human nature and willingly subjecting himself to the sinful desires of those around him and being fixed to a cursed cross. That's why the Holy Spirit does what he does. Opening eyes, giving heart transplants, and bringing about new life. Why? Why? Well, the triune God of glory and grace does all of this, all of this, verse 5, so that we would be adopted into His family. Now, with these glorious gospel truths ringing in our ears, let me ask you this. What is the result of all of this? Well, that brings us to the seventh and final reality of the gospel. The result of Christ's coming. What's the outcome, if you like? Verse 6 answers, And because you are sons, right? Verse 5, adoption. Now verse 6, you are sons now. God has sent forth, uh, rather, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is so magnificent. And it so quickly escapes the, the, the attention of our hearts. As God's people, we are sons. We are not slaves. We're no longer enslaved. To use Jesus' own words, if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. And we are. We have been set free again from slavery and trying to earn God's favor. We've been liberated from the tyranny of the law and its condemnation. Christ has paid off our debt completely so that through His blood we are redeemed redeemed sons. But press even further. Not only are we no longer slaves, now we are not even first and foremost servants. Again, we are sons. The Father has sent His Son. Christ has come to redeem and the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts. And so now, what is the echo of our hearts? The end of verse 6. Not sir, but Abba. Not king, 
but Father. Christian, God is not, now that you and I have been redeemed, if you are trusting in Christ, God is not now first and foremost Creator or Lord or Master. He is your Father. This is why when Jesus teaches His disciples to pray, He says, pray this way, God our Father. Well, why is God our Father? Why does the Holy Spirit who is poured out into our hearts cause us to say, Abba, Father? Because we are part of His family. It would be strange for one of your children to come to me and start saying, Dad. That's a different relationship. That, that relationship doesn't actually exist as much as your children might think that it does. But what God tells us in His Word is that this is a real bona fide relationship. God wants us to call Him Father, not simply out of platitude or or some sentiment, but because He really is our Father. And the reason that He really is our Father is because we really are His sons, because we have really been brought into His family, really through Jesus' death on the cross. And marvel at the grace of God in all of this. God has gone out of His way to adopt us into His family, to make us His children. And let's be honest, most of us are wretches. Correction, all of us are wretches. God goes out of His way to adopt and make a family out of sinful and rebellious people like you and I. And lest the sharp edge be dulled, both to the original hearers there in Galatia and to us as well. Again, this is all owing to God's grace. Remember, there was a pseudo-gospel making its rounds there in Galatia. And it went something like this. If you want to belong to the people of God, then you need to start by being circumcised and then, in effect, become Jewish, adhering to the Mosaic Covenant. In other words, oh, here is your list of stuff for you to do. Get to work. But Paul, like an oasis in a desert, quickly counters. He says, not so. As those who are adopted into God's family, we are adopted into God's family not because we somehow put forth a flashy resume. We're not adopted into God's family because of our works or what we do or what we don't do. At the end of the day and the beginning of the day, it's all about what God has done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do nothing. God does everything. The Father sends, Christ redeems, and the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. That is the work of God. And all we do is receive. We receive these wonderful and glorious gospel blessings. Chief among them, at least here in Galatians 4, is the fact that we are welcomed into God's very family. 
So when we say, good morning, brother, how are you, sister, love you, brother, that means something. It means that we're really brothers, and we're really sisters, and we're really a family, and God is really our Father. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning in the name of Christ, thanking you, thanking you for the work of grace that you have done, thanking you that you would send forth your Son that you might make us sons. Thank you that you have seen fit to save a place for us at your table, to bring us into your family. We pray for our hearts. We know, first of all, that how difficult these things are for us to really believe. It is so easy to sort of check a box on a piece of paper to pass a test. It is another thing to live in light of the fact that you really are our Father and that you have really done everything on our behalf because you want us to be part of your family. We pray that you would cause these truths through the work of your Spirit to actually resonate in our hearts and bring forth life. We pray that we would walk not on eggshells thinking that you are a drill sergeant ready to pounce on us, but that we would joyfully embrace you as our Father and love and encourage our brothers and sisters. We pray that you would do all of these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And God's people said, Amen.